from the Center for the Study of Art and Community. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Story, story, story. Now, more and more, we seem to be living in a world of overlaps. I would posit that this has always been the case, but we've only just begun to acknowledge the permeable nature of the silos we've constructed to protect us from the daunting reality that everything is pretty much connected to everything else. Of course, I'm oversimplifying here, but I do find it interesting that when you look at the nearly 100 people we've talked to on this show, almost all of them are what I call hybrids, multi-sector explorers who have spent their lives exploring that cross-sector Venn diagram of a universe. There they are, combining their creative skill sets with their interests in so many other realms like medicine, public safety, education, community development, transportation, aging, climate justice, peacemaking, well, the list goes on and on. Now, this show's guest, Amoke Kubat, is a prime example whose work as an early childhood educator has morphed and evolved in response to the opportunities and needs rising up from her community in a dozen different overlapping interdependent directions. Ask around the North Minneapolis community where she lives and you'll likely hear Amoke described as an organizer, a puppeteer, a healer, a priestess, a playwright, a counselor, a writer, a teacher, an actress, a curator, a storyteller, and from time to time, a provocateur. The irony, of course, is that Amoke is very label resistant and prefers to let the impact of her work in these realms not only speak for itself, but also tell her what's next. While I think Amoke would also describe herself as old school, I have always thought of her as way ahead of the curve. And given the increasingly twisty nature of our world, I'm quite eager to learn more about how she has managed to successfully navigate her extraordinary journey. Part 1. Northsider for Life Amoke Kuba is from the north side of Minneapolis. For people who are not familiar with the Twin Cities, North Minneapolis is not just a space at the top of the map. It's a distinct social and cultural destination with a history of struggle, resilience, and resistance. I met her when she was a fellow at the Creative Community Leadership Institute in Minneapolis. CCLI, as it was called, was a network of community arts leaders I was working with in the Twin Cities. Sharing that connection and context is important here because Amoke is very much a place-based practitioner. By this, I mean that where she sits and who she sits with constitutes the foundation of her life's work. Right now, I'm in the sacred and traditional homelands of the Dakota and the Anishinaabe people. And, but I live in North Minneapolis. I'm, yeah, I'm a North Sider for life. I came here from Los Angeles and said, where's the black people at? <laughs> where's the poor folks? I wanted to be around people that I understood culturally, shared experiences, struggles. I like people that where the creativity and the resilience and the laughter and the even when people are desperate, they are still finding some purpose in life. A sense of community tied to historical roots, tied to land, tied to storytelling, tied to migration. Black people are not 
colonists. We weren't refugees. We were, we, you know, we have a whole different label, but we know land, we know earth, we know planets, we know connectivity. Many from outside the state regard Minnesota as a liberal bastion, given the area's history as the home of democratic farm labor politics and progressive patron saint Paul Wellstone. There's also the ugly fact that economic disparities among racial and ethnic groups are particularly stark, a fact brought home by 2022 Humphrey Institute research that found that the supplemental poverty rates for African-American and Native American residents are at least three times higher than for white Minnesotans. North Minneapolis is almost like it's a little area that has been blocked off. It's like we almost have our own blockade here. Actually, North Minneapolis in 1937, when the Minneapolis map was deemed a Negro slum. And there's been a lot of practices put in place to keep people here in this area. But there's also another practice of pushing people out and displacing them and extracting the wealth. And somehow we're never, if people do recognize the the strengths and the talents, those are usually what people want to commodify and take away from us. Like they bring in programs, they want to get our above average students and then take them to a suburb someplace and, and, and say, yay, we're helping somebody. No, you're gutting the community. That bright mind needs to stay. That entrepreneur needs to stay here. That budding doctor needs to stay here. Like my daughter had a really horrible time in Minneapolis public schools. She was very sad. And, and when she got into middle school, she became angry and defiant and was a lot of fighting. So I would tell her, you need to take that mouth and become a lawyer or something. But you had to calm it down. She's one of the best community organizers. Going. She is. She's hell on fire. I always tell people she could run the devil out of hell. Amoka shuns labels in the same way she avoids arguments about ideologies and theories and affiliations. And as I said before, she's a hybrid soul with many layers and stories on a life path that combines teaching and creating all with an insatiable drive to tell the story like it is. And with her neighbors, change the story like they want it to be. She also describes herself as a doer, and from her doing comes the learning and the wisdom and the real change that characterizes her work. I tell people I build connectivity. I'm a person that knows a lot of different people that are crazy or squirrely or weird it's heck but somehow when they get in a room with me we become this united nations of possibilities and craziness and fun and humanness so i just tell people i build connectivity as a practice for compassionate caring i just care a lot about people and i do mothering i feel like mothers are the essential first responders but as a artist i write i perform i make dolls i I'm a weaver. I'm becoming a curator of museum installations. I am considered a spiritual culture bearer and community elder. I'm a community organizer that seems to work with environmental issues, one being the removal of the emerald ash trees because of the infestation of the beetle, the boar. And I am now a CEO of the new nonprofit, Your Mama's House, that started off Your Mama's The Art of Mothering Workshops in, in 2010 or so. Part two, Your Mama's House. Another unmistakable characteristic of Amoki's way of working is her belief that on her path, one thing leads to another. And like the unfolding story of Your Mama's House, Those things add up to something important that needs to happen. 
Uh, your mama's house actually started in early childhood education at, uh, classroom. I was the teacher. And I wrote a curriculum and asked them to let me teach it so I could see what the kinks were and how the families were because we had a, a very diverse classroom of women who were from West Africa, East Africa, Latin American countries, Mexico, black, white, biracial families, queer families, Southeast Asian families. We just had a bunch of families with a bunch of babies. So I had three, four interpreters and I was getting like 20 families, I don't know, eight o'clock uh, Saturday morning and, and, and they'd have 40 kids and, and we'd have breakfast together and then my the kids would get go with the teachers and do things and I would have the parents. So this particular lesson was to be about creativity, the fostering of creativity in children. Children are naturally creative, but we squelch it out of them by the time they get to um, kindergarten. There's no art. They're not painting. They're not playing in clay. They've got 10 minutes worth of recess. And it's really dismal what happens with children after uh, early childhood education. So I put all this stuff on the table. I put palm balls and twisty sticks and popsicle sticks and tongue depressors and glue and paint and all this stuff you can get from the Dollar Tree. And I started talking about child development. And all of a sudden I realized I don't have anybody listening to me. And so I was like, okay, what happened to my audience? And I look up and the mothers are making flowers and they're weaving things and they're twisting things and they're painting each other. Other, and they're talking to each other. Usually they sit and listen to me talk. They're telling how they hadn't done art since they were children. Their mother used to do art. The grandmothers used to weave. And they had all these traditions that they got away from it. And they started talking about the wisdom of their mothers. And I thought, wait a minute, we got something going on here. Let's talk about this. And they started talking about how they felt isolated from each other as mothers. And they had been told bad things about each other. Oh, don't go over there and live in that neighborhood. That's dangerous. Oh, don't call, talk to them. They're violent. One person wanted to know about what did Muslim women do. And so it was just these rich conversations. And I basically said, would you like to do something like this? And they would go, yeah, we'd love to do something like this. And I said, OK, let me think about it. Even though she was not looking for a new job, job, not long after this, Amoke decided to enroll in a training program for community health workers. In that class, she met a young woman who, like her, was struggling with the class's technology and was also... She brought me these beautiful paintings she did on brown paper bags. All of them were one of a kind, and she literally selling them for five dollars. They were out in the world, never to be seen again. I said, oh no, I came here for you. I said, you need to do this. And can I help you do this? I have this idea about this art making space for women and mothers, grandmothers, and found out that she had been kicked to the curb by her husband. She had been had a botch surgery. And so she had a lot of problems that she was trying to work out. So I thought, I'll tell you what, if you can do 100 bags, we'll put you on the map. I promise you that. And we were the first two people to do your mama's house, a juxtaposition art, just me and her sitting in the gallery. She was painting and I was writing. And women would just look in and drop in and they'd stop. And then they'd come in and make earrings. And one person said, I'll teach you how to unravel a sweater and, 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 and you can make winter hats. So women started coming and started really teaching each other the skills. So I thought, okay, we're learning traditional and non-traditional skills because somebody wanted to do claymation and the walker art came in and stepped in and said, how can we support you? So we had claymation with the Walker Arts. One day, mothers said they were exhausted. So someone gave me a blueprint of a rocking chair, and we went to Walker again and had a picnic and built this one rocker. Had everybody in the park cameraing or grabbing stuff and sitting around and talking. That chair, dubbed the sick and tired of being sick and tired rocking chair by its makers, became 
a prototype for the creation of other chairs like the Baby Mama Chair made in partnership with homeless youth at a local organization called Culture Club, the Ancestral Chair with the Gaia Democratic School and the Resistance Chair with the group of Northside Mothers. And so that's how the momentum started. As I did this, I had to find spaces to do these these workshops. So I was dragging tote bags and boxes and stuff. One particular house, St. James House here in North Minneapolis, was a place that invited the community to use the house. Beautiful house, beautiful gardens, beautiful spaces. And it dawned to me, your mama needs her own house. So I thought, what? is it I want for the house. What I wanted for the house was what my aunt offered me. I was little and I was passed around to all kinds of families and all kinds of places. And I knew that whatever happened, if I could just get to my Aunt Ethel's house, I would feel okay. In her memoir, Missing Mama, here's how Amoke describes the sanctuary her Aunt Ethel provided to her as a young girl growing up in Los Angeles. Your mama's house is rooted in my love of my Aunt Ethel's butterscotch color house on Edge Hill Drive in West Los Angeles. Love loomed large there. Love was found in her domain, the kitchen, and cast iron pots that held savory taste from all day Southern cooking and on the formica table burdened with the sweetness of jellies, cakes, and pies. In her home, my eyes sought the familiars, stacks of cotton fabric, McCall patterns, tailor pins, and scissors, Avon books with cosmetic samples, church fans and calendars for mortuaries, and an initialed handkerchief my aunt had found in time to embroider. She offered stacks plates of foods to my starving spirit and refreshed my soul with the hum of something new from the choir. Love was wedged between the stacks of Jet and Sepia magazines, and between their pages, colored people's lives were important. Love bloomed in her gardens. I fell in love with roses. I ate citrus fruits from the trees or drank fresh lemonade and juices out of jelly jars. In Aunt Ethel's house, home and love was always the same things, and I was always safe, loved, and welcomed. I wanted this experience in space for Black mothers. No mothers are ever excluded. The seed for your mama's house was planted. So that's that's what your mama's house was my idea of what did that. I was very blessed that an organization in California gave me a $25,000 down payment. So that's how we got our house. That 2019 grant was provided by the Center for Cultural Innovations Ambitious Fund, which describes itself as encouraging the development of burgeoning alternative economies and fresh social contracts in ways that artists and cultural communities can achieve financial freedom. It's important to realize, though, that Yo Mama is more than just a catchy name. Amoke says that the reason that her Aunt Ethel's house was so important to her was that there was a real absence of mothering in her young life. The way she describes it is that her mother had her, but she did not have her mother. So Amoke created Yo Mama's house as more than a community art center. She created it as a safe and sacred space in celebration of mothering. Mothering is an art. Women are having to turn on the dimes, spin around 363 degree stretches and bending over and stretching. They can make things work all the time, all over the world. 
and how we're put at the bottom and not resourced and our children are not educated and we're not housed. And it's, I don't understand it. I just, I don't get it. The family unit is your smallest societal unit. If it is broken, everything else breaks or does not even get built. It just doesn't. And most people who are healthy are really standing on the backs of their ancestors. It's their, the glue that's holding them together are those familiar stories, those narratives, those know how to do get stuff get done. Um, in the absence of mothers, I basically adopted a lot of other mothers. I wrote to Alice Walker. She wrote back. I wrote to her like she was a friend. It was like she was mothering to me, reading her stories, reading what she wrote, hearing her, her mothering stories, hearing her stories about her mother. Part three, angry meets well-intentioned. Given the hard work and the satisfaction of making Yo Mama's House a reality, one might imagine that its creation would represent a sort of finish line for the Amoke Kubat story, but I'm sure you've noticed that that's not exactly how Amoke rolls. So it's probably more accurate to describe the house as providing another in a long line of launch pads for what comes next. That next chapter came just before the pandemic descended by way of the Wiseman Art Center at the University of Minnesota. I drove the Wiseman Art Museum nuts. We basically, they just told me, they would never tell me I can do anything I want to do. And I was very clear with what can't I do? Are you sure you're allowing me to be unleashed here? Yes. No problem. Whatever you want to do. They Within a few days, they were asking me to start scaling stuff back. We had aerialists. We had jazz musicians. We had dancers. We had shadow puppets. We had 33 artists showing their art on the walls, on the tables, on the floors. I did a play. I had asked for extra rooms for breakout sessions after the play. We always have a post-play discussion. Uh, I tried to tell the Wiseman, the audience is not going to go anywhere after the play. So we have to have room to have them talk. And no, that's not going to, we don't have that many people show up. It's, it's February, blah, blah, blah. Over 300 people RSVP. So we were packed. The show started at one o'clock. We staggered out of there at five o'clock. The museum had never seen anything like that. I said, this is the topic that people need to talk and they need to grieve and they need to, they need to, not walk home and, and don't have any place to put what their feelings are. They have a lot of feelings. The play that needed this time and space for reflection and grieving is called Angry Black Woman and Well-Intentioned White Girl. It's described as a play that goes there by expressing the daily unsaids between black and white women. Like so many of Amoke's life-spawned creations, its genesis is an epic story unto itself. I'm known for speaking my mind, and I'm known for saying what I need to say when I need to say it. And I had been meeting with a group of people for about six months, and we were talking about the same thing and not making any progress. And I'm teaching full time. I have children. I write when I can. And I said, I can't keep showing up. And we, we haven't got any further than we had the last time. And I had my notes and said, OK, you were sitting here and you said this and you said this. What are we doing? I don't have the time. And someone perceived me as angry. And I said, no, I'm not angry. I have more emotions than angry. I'm actually frustrated. I like getting things done. I'm not excited about putting a bunch of stuff in planners and having a bunch of meetings. I'm not a meeting person. I'm a doer. So this person considered to poke and, oh, you're angry. And why are black women? I said, you know what? Don't go there. 
And so by the time I left, I was angry. My next stop was with a friend who was hiring me to work with the after-school program in North Minneapolis. And as soon as I got out the car, she's standing in the park lot, and I just blurted out, I am so tired of being called the angry black woman. And she just stood there a minute, and she said, the well-intentioned white girl? And I said, oh, you get called something too? <laughs> so I said, we have to talk about this. So we started having these conversations. And I just said, you know what? I'm taking this to the stage. This is the conversation I got to have going. I think I need to drag more people in here with this. And she and I working together got into a place one day. She was my boss and she stepped on my toes and she did it in front of kids. And all the air got sucked out the room really quickly. And I was like, okay. So I just said, they're yours now. You didn't disrupt what I was doing. So they're now yours. And you figured this out now. And she said, oh, I angry black woman, unchanging white girl. And I said, yep, we're there. But I said, because I love you and respect your work. I said, we're going to work this out. We're going to put this in the play. We're going to work this out. But as I wrote the play, I realized I can't write for white women. The goal was to get white women to tell me their stories. And we had a breakout group at Intermediate Arts and we had a, the other breakout group at Hope Community. We could not put the black and the white women together. They, it was not going to happen. And they were asked a couple of questions. They were asked, how do you participate in Minnesota Nice? Every time you ask a white woman, they start giggling or crying. <laughs> so you ask a black woman to get mad. So it was a real dichotomy, just really something to see that. And what's the other question? Can black and white women be allies? Black women were like, mm. they're talking in their throat. They're like, mm. and the body language is like, mm, it's going to be a stretch. And white women were like, yeah, we can do this. And I'm going, okay. So I get asked them if they did not want me to use their language or extract something from their conversation to let me know. No one did. So that gave Jen, the other actor, the opportunity to understand where I was going with the play and the conversation I would like to have. She's amazing. Wrote the script. Did it as a public read. We had 90 people show up just to hear it read. By the time we did two sold out, two performances sold out. They wanted a third show, and I was like, absolutely not. I'm going to seminary at the same time. I can't do more than this. And I got rear-ended three days before the play. Jen almost got hit by a car. So it was wild. Jennifer also had children. So working with her and her family, and she lives in Wisconsin. There was a lot of variables of what we're doing. Nicole Smith, who was CCLI member with me, became our director, and she started losing her eyesight. So it was quite an experience to get this play done. So we were a pretty motley crew, but we got it done. Here are the angry black woman, Amoke Kubat, and the well-intentioned white girl, Jennifer Johnson, getting into it on the Wiseman stage. This feels like somebody is dying. Oh, join the club. This is a human journey. Can't you help me? Something. Please, I'm lost. You have to do your own discovery. I mean, find your own keys and unlock your own doors. Tell this to the people you know, your white mother, your white father, the white preacher, the white teacher, those people, those white people who make those racist and sexist comments. You want me to die. I will be shamed, shunned, discarded. Oh, you can't have it both ways. Either fix it or stay broken. The play ebbs and flows with barbs, insults, and difficult truths that are both hard to hear and, at times, incredibly funny. I am not a criminal. Yet everything I do gets pathologized or criminalized. Despite my daily attempts to do the best I can, 
My trauma becomes your entertainment. How could you not be angry? How could you not be angry? Oh. Yeah. Oh. You are attracted to me, my anger, like a moth to a flame, except, you know what, we both get burned. I can't keep carrying this unbearable weight of elective ancestral and crushing despair. We, black women, white women, we kind of coexist in this historical tango of bullshit and shame and sorrow and anger and rage. Rock, paper, scissors, rock, paper, scissors, fear, flame, crazy, fear, flame, crazy, rape, violated, violence, violated, violence, what do I do? What the fuck do I do? Own it. Tell me how. No. Please. No. It's a complete sentence. Then why am I here? Maybe you don't want to do this diversity shit anymore than I do. Maybe you want to stop being all fake and stoic fakes. Maybe you just need to stop triggering and re-traumatizing me. I don't like this. I don't want to feel bad. I don't like it. Green eggs and ham. I'll watch the Orange County. Stop being a child. did that. And from there, someone heard about this play in Duluth, wanted us to come up there. A woman named Missy Polster called me and said, I want the play to come to Sandstone. I said, I have no idea where Sandstone is, but she wrote a grant that got us up to St. Cloud, Duluth, Cambridge, Cloquet, and Sandstone. From there, we've gone from, we've gone to Rochester, Grand Rapids, Uh, We've gone to about 10 places, rural places. What's interesting is most of those places do not have a large population of Black people. A lot of them did not understand the term Minnesota nice. Jen's character actually turned into be three characters by the time we started doing the play. She was the well-intentioned white girl. Then she became the ghost of Wonder Bread, good old days. I was very surprised when that character start showed up. But that character really told the story of how white people became white. Jen actually had a real interesting journey with this because she started looking at her Irish ancestry. So she started suggesting things that she was feeling in her spirit, like ancestors were seemingly like talk to her. She had a one one scene is where she is a mother on a ship and she tosses the ba- dead baby into the, to the waters. And she sings this beautiful Gaelic song of sorrow and grief and lamentation. So it just it keeps growing. It keeps growing. We started inviting men to the performances and Twin Cities detoxifying masculinity came in and gave us the piece that they thought men needed to work on. So the play has gone to Kentucky State University and has been debated by the forensic debating. People have written about it. I'm tr- I would love for somebody to pick up the script and just do it in their own community. Another extraordinary thing that has happened, the rural women who had seen the play About 20 of them got together between the five cities and they started having book clubs to educate themselves and and readings and and coffee clutches and and just started. They call themselves Compass, Compassionate Community. 
And when they started together, they started wanting to be anti-racist. They wanted to know how could I do better? How They wanted a world that was different than the world that they had grown in. They wanted their children to grow into the world. That group is still going. I just went to a, a retreat at a farm about a month ago, and those women dropped in to have bread with us and tea and, and hanging out and just eating and talking and laughing. And so there's a whole community that still continues to support the play. And, and hopefully in 2024, we'll figure out a way to bring it back. Part four, pinwheels. As you've heard, Amoka's life is full and demanding. It's important, though, to recognize that a powerful grounding for all of this is her deep connection to the spirit of the earth, the legacy of her ancestors, and her belief in the power of her intuition. The Yoruba concept, Ori, is your divine mind. It's your first mind. It's a mind that we often don't pay attention to. We often, oh, I should have had a V8 after you even had a, something that just about poisoned you. you. You really should have had that V8. It's that kind of mind. It's a mind that doesn't get censored. It's the mind that's connected to the divine. It's connected to your destiny. It's like your own personal deity. So I was told when I joined or became in the community of Ishishie or Yorba, Ifa, Orisha, that I had to follow my Ori, no matter who it was, what it was. I have a very strong sense of intuition. So they were like, you have to do this. Usually people will see that it's because it's part of my process of I'm determined to get to the point A to point B because that's where I'm being led to. And so like I said, people seek me out. I don't seek anybody out anymore. I, people seek come to me with problem-solving things they need or want creative help or whatever. It's, even the house was a place to, people were just tired and they would just want to come over and just lay down and go to sleep or read or dance or go in my kitchen and cook. So it was the kind of house, again, like my aunt, my aunt Ethel's house. It was like a refuge. It was a place, a sanctuary. So it's a thing of mutual aid that's what our ancestor did they did mutual aid you just saw what somebody needed and you didn't have to qualify or write an application or do some planning or it wasn't transactional this person needs to eat get up and feed them we took care of each other amoke also describes times when the opportunity the need to respond just makes its presence felt and her spirit her intuition just takes over and leads her i go down to the river and i pray one of the easiest art projects I ever did was I was trying to figure out how to transform the energy in North Minneapolis when the police were killing people over here on a regular basis in this time that Mr. Jamar Clark was killed. And I just thought, I'm ready to just go out in the street and just really do some voodoo, do something. But I can't take this anymore. And I can't sit around and just wring my hands and be nervous about it. I got to do something. And my elders were like, no, you just can't go out and just do anything. And I thought, but something has to change. So Oya is an Orisha that is considered the energy of change. So I went to the dollar store and got these pinwheels. And on the pinwheels, I wrote on the pedals all the things that I wanted to blow out of Minneapolis or all the things I wanted to be blown into Minneapolis. And I took them down to the river. And I stuck them in the in the riverbank and I prayed over them. And I brought the pinwheels home, th- thought about it and said, okay, I think I need to give them to people. I made a hundred of them. I did, just did a hundred of them. And I happened to be driving and they were in the backseat of my car and I saw a yard sale. 
So I went up to the people in the yard till and said, look, this is what I've done. This is what I'd like to do. And I thought they were going to say I was corny. I thought they were going to say I was a crazy old lady. And they started taking these pinwheels by the handfuls. And they were like, I'm putting them in my yard. I'm going to put them in my, I'm going to take them to my church. And they started, these pinwheels started popping up. I took a handful of them down to where Jamar Clark was killed. They ended up ending up in places like the mayor's office. They ended up at schools. The, the seminary started making them with me. People started coming to my house to make them. So these pinwheels went out with the prayers of the people to hold things together and hold things down. So that's how my work goes. It's like a response to something. And that's what my passion is. That's connecting. We're stronger together. We're, we're better together than we are alone in isolation and fear. I've learned, for me, I don't need to know all of the Creator Spirit's mysteries. I really don't. And so that takes a lot of weight off for me. Just, you don't have to know everything. Because I think this culture is into, you have to know everything. There's some kind of stigma around that you could be possibly stupid or dull. So I don't have that. There's a lot of ways of knowing. And I, and I have some of those. I, I just do what I hear to do. I am more right now just focused on art making. Uh, because that that is giving me life in this time where it is just so insane. And I've stopped trying to make sense out of what's insane. You can't. I, but other than that, no, I, I don't have that angst anymore. I, that's gone. I don't. And, I, and some part of me is still very optimistic. I really believe in human beings that we can be better. Given all that she's been through and all that she's done, the simple but powerful belief that we humans can be better has, I think, functioned as a kind of a North Star for Amoke Kuban. And hopefully after hearing her story, it can resonate in some way for you. So thanks again for lending us your ear, and also, if you're so inspired, passing this story and its companions on Change the Story, Change the World on to your friends. And hey, if you have some comments or questions or ideas about how we can expand the Change the Story community or people you think we should be talking to, please drop us a line at csac at artandcommunity.com. That's csac at artandcommunity.com. And please know that we read and try our best to respond to everything. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our theme and soundscape spring forth from the head, heart, and hands of the maestro Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our effects come from freesound.org. Our inspiration rises up from the ever-present spirit of OOP 235. So, until next time, stay well, do good, and spread the good word, and rest assured... This episode has been 100% human.